morning. You guys are going to need to work on that because it doesn't seem like you're quite awake yet. And you're going to need to be in about 20 minutes when you're going to sing. You guys handle that? All right, good, good. Uh, welcome. If I haven't met you yet, I'm uh, Pastor Nathan, uh, one of the pastors here at St. John's. Uh, so glad uh, to have you with us this morning. A special welcome to our kindergartners who I see playing on the playground every day. You guys are awesome. And uh, also parents, uh, glad that you're here with us this morning in worship. Uh, this morning we're kind of jumping into the deep end a little bit. Uh, see, we're in the middle of our series called Foundations, where we are looking at those basic fundamental truths of what it means to be a Christian. These things that, that for us as followers of Jesus anchor our lives and our hearts to Jesus and inform who we are. And at the very center of that is what we're talking about today. The meal, as sometimes is called the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist. Because those people that have a biblical view of spiritual reality, us and uh, Jews, this event, this thing is at the center of our identity and who we are as people. You see, the Passover for Jews is the meal that makes them who they are, that helps them to understand their identity, where they've come from and where they're going. The same is true for us as Christians. As followers of Jesus, a revised Passover meal, or as we call it, communion, or Lord's Supper, is at the center of Christian worship. The thing that more than anything else makes us who we are. And at the center of that is the death of a helpless lamb. So today we're going to talk about the meal, its origin, and why forgiveness always has a cost, and see what's going on. So let's jump right into our text and see what Jesus has to say from Luke chapter 22. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, you will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until I enter the kingdom of God. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. See, here Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And in this meal, two very important things are colliding in this meal. A meal which Jesus has celebrated with his family for many, many times and also with his disciples. And the fact that this is the last meal that Jesus is going to eat before he suffers. And so the words that he shares with his disciples are sort of a last will and testament that he gives to his disciples. And this is where things get a little bit strange. See, Passover is all about remembering the history of God's people and how God has brought the Israelites out of slavery and Egypt, about remembering and recounting the saving deeds of God, how God delivered them out of bondage and slavery and Egypt. And it has a script. Has anybody out there ever been to a Passover meal at someone's house or a Seder supper? It has a script, right? 
Along with the food comes words that you say, and it always goes that way. See, the meal is just as much about the words as it is about the food. But Jesus does something unusual, as we saw in our text. He changes the script. It would be kind of like for us as Americans going to a sporting event. And we go to the sporting event, and we're getting ready for the whole thing to start. And what always happens at the beginning of a sporting event? The national anthem. For us, it's a piece of identity as Americans for ourselves and for our country. Can you imagine what would happen if someone got up and sung something other than the national anthem? That's what Jesus is doing to his disciples here. He's taken something they know, something they understand, and he's taken and he's turned it just a little bit and helped them to make it into something more significant and more powerful for you and for me. What Jesus does for us here in this meal, if we believe what the Bible says, is just so incredible. You see, in those words that we just read, Jesus promises that he is truly present for us in the meal, in the bread and the wine, his body and his blood, that that God comes down and dwells among his people and offers himself to you and to me. And he says that he's there for you, for your forgiveness. And the Bible says that where there is forgiveness, there is life and salvation. So much in simple words. As I looked at those words and thought about the bread and the wine and the little plastic cup, I I remembered what Bono wrote about his song, Pride. You see, he wasn't very satisfied with the lyrics of the song. It's the one that has that catchy chorus, the one that if, if I start to say it, I might start to sing it, and that would be very bad for all of you. The one that says, what more in the name of love? And see, Bono started reflecting on that song after it came out, and he said, what is that all about? It's just a load of vowel sounds ganging up on a great man. It's emotionally very articulate if you don't speak English. How can such simple words and orny things mean so much? But then again, you kindergarten parents know about this, don't you? That's why you're here this morning. Because you want to see your kids sing. Because your kids mean so much to you and they say simple things and do simple things and you get so excited. I know this as a parent I still remember the first time that Bree said, I love you. It sounded more like olive juice, (laughs) but it stuck in my heart and in my mind. Simple things can do great things when the right person is speaking. But we're jumping into the middle of the story, Uh, the story of a lamb, a story that goes from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. Starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation with the Lamb seated on the throne at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And this meal is a foretaste of that meal. But let's go to the Passover. The Passover so we can get some context and hear what this meal is that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples. So jumping to Exodus chapter 12 beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt... This month is to be for you the first month, 
the first month of the year, tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of each month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them on the 14th month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. This is how you are to eat. With your cloak tucked in to your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. A couple of things. First, we notice that the meal has specific ingredients. It has unleavened bread, it has wine, and it has a lamb. Uh, Second, that this is the final plague that that God is sending on Egypt to try and bring his people out, which he actually succeeds in doing. He didn't try, he did it. And so he brings his people out with this plague, and what happened is the first few plagues affected all of Egypt. But then the plagues only started affecting the Egyptians, because they were living in different parts. The Egyptians were living, living around the river, and the Israelites were living in this other region called Goshen. But that changes with this one. See, God goes on to say in verse 22, None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top of the sides of the doorframe and will pass over the doorway and will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And this is very confusing because God has been directing his plagues against Egypt. And now he's warning the Israelites, you guys need to be careful because if you're not careful and listen carefully to what I say, this is going to fall on you too. And he says the destroyer, eternal divine justice and judgment is coming ahead of time. And it is coming to all of the people in Egypt, Israelites and Egyptians alike. And what he's saying to them is even though the Egyptians are the oppressors and you are the oppressed, when it comes to my standard, you are the same. Sin has a cost. There is a debt to be paid. And everyone has to pay it. And so this irresistible, unstoppable force is coming and it's going to slice through Egypt, the greatest power on the face of the earth politically and militarily. And God says to his people, this thing is coming. Don't go outside. Stay inside the house with the door frames marked with blood or you will die. And then he says, the only way that you can save yourselves, stop this unstoppable force, is to get a lamb. 
I see every firstborn in Israel at home looked at the table and saw the lamb and says, the only reason that I am alive and here tonight is because that lamb is dead. And at this point in time, some of you are probably having a couple of objections. They're saying, if there is a God, why would he go through all of this? Because it doesn't make any sense. Why can't he just forgive and let bygones be bygones and move forward? No, he can't. You can't just forgive things that are done wrong because sin has a cost. There must be payment. Uh, This is true for us in real life. If you think about it for a moment, someone always has to pay the penalty. The thought that horrifies me more than anything else in the world were if something were to happen to one of my daughters. Parents, you feel the same way, right? It would be the worst thing in the world. Now imagine something like that happens and they caught the guy. The guy is standing before the judge. He's guilty and everyone knows it. What would be wrong if the judge decided to have mercy and let him go? It would devalue my loss, right? It would devalue what was taken away from me. It would devalue the lives that were hurt. It would mean what I lost was worthless. And more than that, I wouldn't want the same thing to happen to anyone else. So whenever something happens, someone always has to pay. Either the man that did it or we as society pay because if there's no punishment for things that are done wrong, then people will just keep doing it because there's nothing to stop them. The Bible says the same is true for you and for me in our lives. When someone does something wrong against us, we have a choice. We can hold a grudge. Or we can choose to forgive. But someone always has to pay. If we decide to hold a grudge and be angry at them, we're making them pay the cost, right? Because we're going to try and hurt them. We're going to try and slice up their reputation by talking badly about them. We're going to be tempted to think negative thoughts about who they are and and all this other sorts of stuff. And so we try and make them pay. God says, don't do that, because that will make you a hard person. Instead, forgive. But each time you face that temptation, that temptation of thinking poorly about someone or saying something mean about someone, who's paying the cost? You are. You're paying the cost of not holding something against them. And then the second objection, of course, is a lamb. This great big story, this incredible story about this unstoppable, amazing power descending and coming. And God says, get a furry little quadruped and you'll be good. I think of the movie uh, Fifth Element. Then Maybe some people thought it was terrible. I thought it was great. But this great stoppable force that God says, God says, get a lamb. How does a lamb keep the destroyer at bay? See, the story doesn't make any sense unless the lamb is pointing 
to another lamb. Jesus Christ, on the night when he is betrayed, celebrates the Passover with his disciples. And two shocking things happen in that meal. The first one I mentioned earlier, that Jesus changes the script. Instead of getting up and saying, this is the bread of our affliction, our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we could be free, he gets up and he says, this is my body. This is my body. In other words, he's saying, this is the bread of my affliction. I'm going to suffer in order to give you ultimate freedom. Freedom not just from physical, political, and economical injustice, but I'm going to suffer in order to give you freedom from sin and from death. I am the lamb that all of those other lambs were pointing to. When he says that in the place of the presider of the meal, He's saying it is my suffering that is going to bring ultimate liberation for you. And here's the second shock. When he stood up, the disciples looked down, and there are three things at the Passover meal. You have unleavened bread, and there's Jesus breaking the bread, and you have four cups of wine, and you have Jesus pouring out the wine, and then there is the lamb. There is no reference to a lamb. There's no lamb. And his disciples have to be saying at this point in time, what type of a Passover meal is this? There's no lamb on the table. You know why? Do you know why? You know why? Because the lamb is at the table. The lamb is deliberately removed from this Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples. Because Jesus is saying to them, I am the Passover lamb. All of history has been pointing towards me. My death is the central event to which all the history of God's relating to the world has been moving. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said for the first time, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John says that, he's saying, I get it. I understand now. Our firstborn sons were not saved because of the death of some furry little lamb. Our firstborn sons were saved because God gave up his firstborn son. When the beloved son cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father paid the price with his silence. In this chapter of the story of the Lamb, Jesus says to you and to me, I am the Lamb. I have come to give you freedom. And because he is the Lamb, we can know that we have peace with God. Amen.